and welcome to the City Grace Podcast. We're so happy you've decided to join us today as we learn how amazing it is to follow Jesus. Enjoy the message. Um, again, it's so good to be here and just good to enjoy the presence of God. Um, before we move on into the lesson today, the series that we're continuing today on guardrails, and um, hopefully you've been able to kind of plug in with this and and lean into the material a little bit, and we have a couple of small groups going on that are discussing the material later on during the week, um, and if you're interested in that, of course, you can go to our, our small groups page and, and find out how to get connected with all that, and uh, I, I know that you'll be blessed and, and benefited by that. I've heard some great feedback from the, from the, the groups that are going on, so uh, I'm, I'm just really grateful for this study and everything that it's bringing out. I love what this study has to say to us, especially as we navigate you know, 2020 and this new brave world that we all live in, and um, especially as we navigate the New Testament, the New Covenant, and, and what that means and how that applies to Christian living, um, just because there's there's a lot to it, and I'll just I'll just leave it at that. But I'm so glad to kind of dive into these ideas of guardrails, and uh, just a little bit of review why we're looking at guardrails. What guardrails are? Is there a system? Designed to keep vehicles from straying into dangerous or off-limit areas. Designed to keep you from going over the edge of a cliff. Designed to keep you from drifting into oncoming traffic or maybe to protect oncoming traffic from you. Can I hear an amen from somebody who's a dangerous driver? Um, but uh, And really, guardrails serve two purposes. Guardrails exist to direct us, and guardrails exist to protect us. They show us where the road might be curving when we might not be expecting it, where there might be danger, um, how to keep ourselves protected, keep ourselves from going over the edge. And then another important thing about guardrails to remember is that guardrails are actually placed inside the safety zone. Guardrails don't exist, you know, over the edge of the cliff. What would be the point of that? Guardrails actually exist on the road within the safety zone, um, and, and they're never placed in the danger zone. And then, of course, guardrails, we've been talking about guardrails are designed to minimize damage, that if you hit a guardrail with your car, it's going to cause some damage to your car, um, but it will cause a lot less damage to you. And your car might have to go to the body shop, but hopefully will keep you out of the morgue. Uh, and so guardrails are obviously very important when it comes to, you know, traffic and, and here in, in, in America, especially where everybody has a car pretty much. And, and, and why are we talking about guardrails? Well, obviously it's a metaphor. Because as it turns out, the physical highway, the driving highway, isn't the only place in life that we could use some guardrails to keep us safe. And, and, and if we were to pull the room and talk to everybody in the room, we would probably all come to the conclusion that some of our greatest in regrets in life could have been avoided and, and would have been avoided indeed if we had had some guardrails in place for living. Whether it would be some financial guardrails, some relational guardrails, some moral guardrails, some professional guardrails, whatever it might have been in whatever area of life where we found ourselves into trouble, where we found ourselves having regrets in life, if we had had some guardrails, we could have avoided some of those regrets. And, and, and then we've talked about this idea, and I think this is so, so important as it comes to being a Christian in 2020 and, and kind of some of the misconceptions and, and mis you know, understandings of Christianity and, and what Christians are all about. I think it's so very important for us to understand and for us to acknowledge as Jesus followers in, in this current day that we're living in that guardrails are personal. Guardrails are for you. 
These are boundaries for you to develop for yourself. These are boundaries that I should develop for myself. And, and I'm not pushing my boundaries on you, and I don't want you to push your boundaries on me, and I'm navigating for me, and you're navigating your own path for you. But guardrails are really the standard of behavior that becomes a matter of conscience for each and every one of us. And since we all have individual consciences, then we all need our own individual sets of guardrails. We need our own boundaries, our own ways to keep us safe, Um, whether it's professionally, whether it's uh, keep us safe in our circle of friends or our associates, um, whether it's keeping us safe within our marriages, whether it's keeping us safe within our financial situations and statuses. I have some places in life that I don't want to end up. And so when I begin to drift toward that place where I don't, end, or I don't want to end up a guardrail is something that I have chosen to trigger my conscience before. Everybody say before. Uh, a guardrail is something we use to trigger our conscience before we get to that place where we hurt ourselves or hurt someone else. So a guardrail in this sense is like this trigger on the inside, something to, to tell us to pump the brakes before we hit that dangerous curve, before we go over the edge. It's a trigger for me. It's not something I decide for you. This is all about me. And last week, we kind of talked about this. It's a difference between being judgmental and exercising good judgment. I'm not here to be judgmental about you. I'm not here to tell you how you should have turned out in life or what you should do differently. That might be judgmental. This is about me. It's about me exercising good judgment for myself. But then something else that we've kind of bumped up against in this series that we've talked about is that culture doesn't always help us with this distinction. In fact, culture and, and, and the society that we live in um, sort of bristles at the idea of, of personal guardrails and, and maybe even seems to mock them and tell us that we don't need these rules to live by rules. And of course, we get this because nobody likes being told what to do, right? You don't like being told what to do. I don't like being told what to do. And so especially when it comes to the topic that we're going to cover today with moral guardrails or relational guardrails, society and culture kind of pushes back against any idea of having personal guardrails. Guardrails that you might set up for your marriage or maybe guardrails you might set up actually before your marriage. And so there's a word that we're going to kind of talk about today or, or kind of you know be all around today. And it's a word that we don't use much in 2020, but it's the word fidelity. Fidelity. And, and the word fidelity, kind of in a, in a brief summary, talks about being faithful or being loyal. And, and so we're going to talk about how to protect your relationship. Maybe it's your, your marriage with your husband or your wife, or maybe it's your, you know, you're engaged, and so it's your significant other, your fiance. But we're going we're gonna to try and, and maybe make some suggestions today to set some standards that might ding your conscience, might light up your conscience when you get too close to danger. And when it comes to this topic, and when it comes to this area of life, culture really does it, it just it, it's it, it's worst. It really does a job on us, kind of inviting us close to the edge when it comes to this area of life. And if we're honest this morning, you all ready to be honest in church? If we're honest this morning, there is a sense in which in which all of us are really part of the problem that culture is propagating amongst us. Now think about this. So many of us entertain ourselves with media, with movies, with music, with TV shows, and with with books that kind of glorify sex outside of marriage or kind of celebrate sex without marriage. And we watch them. There's no amens. And we read about them. And nobody's 
saying, "Uh uh-huh, except Carl over there. And Carl probably doesn't read about them, but, you know, whatever. We sing about them, right? But, you know, then when it comes to, like, knowing someone, you can't believe that your coworker did that. You can't believe that that happened with your brother-in-law. And we watch it on the screen, but we can't stand to watch it in real life. And, and, And it's just... Now, there is kind of this interesting thing, though, like in America since about the 1960s or so, sex without marriage isn't really taboo anymore. That's something that's kind of shifted in our culture, right? That's something that's kind of shifted in our society. And, you know, there's this saying going around that, you know, like, well, boys will be boys, right? And, and when it comes to males kind of sleeping around, it's, 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 it's almost something that's celebrated. But when it comes to females, it's something that's shamed, right? There's kind of this double standard within our culture. And, and again, the saying, boys will be boys. And Ann Voskamp actually had a great, a great quote, quote, even though it's kind of, it's, it's a little bit heavy. She said, when boys will be boys, girls will be garbage. And we see that portrayed. We see that acted out in society. But really, sex without marriage has kind of become an acceptable part of culture now. And, and, and this is part of the reason why, because culture has kind of done this number on us in this area, and it kind of brings us or leads us to celebrate infidelity rather than fidelity. But then again, culture does that thing where it kind of mocks or shames people who go off the edge in this area. And here's the thing. If we could get this one thing right as a community... If we could get this one thing right, like as a city, you know, not doing the whole sex without marriage thing, like the statistics show this, the studies and the research show this, we could make a huge dent in poverty in our area if we could tackle this one thing. It's amazing to me as a societal issue, as a cultural issue, there would be less domestic violence in our city if over the next year we would tackle this as a city or as a community. There would be fewer children in foster care, fewer boys and girls growing up without a mom or a dad if we could just get serious about this one issue. It's amazing to me that culture, we, we exist with these problems and with these pain points, and we have them all around us, and we see them all around us, but yet culture does nothing to try and affect the problem in a positive manner. Culture seems just content to celebrate what's going on and that is perpetuating the problem. And I bet every person in this room knows someone, maybe Some of the people in this room is someone or was raised by someone whose life would be completely different with some guardrails in this area. And so this is, a, this is an area of the, it's kind of touchy to talk about. It's not fun to talk about. Um, you know, as a pastor, this is always something that's uncomfortable to talk about, to get up in the pulpit and talk about sex and that kind of stuff. And, and so we're going to, you know, kind of stay on the surface level here today. But this is an area that is so misunderstood and, and really Honestly, it's so badly represented when it comes to Christianity and, and Jesus and the Bible and what he had to say. But I, I like the, the way that this study kind of sets up this whole idea and sets up the issue that we're going to talk about today. And, and if you can imagine, if you were God, if you were God, what would you say to people about this subject? If you were God and you had to talk to your creation, the ones that are made in your image, that that you put on this planet to rule over this planet, to to thrive and to prosper on this planet, what would you have to say about this subject? Would you just tell people to just, you know, go for it, have a free-for-all when it comes to sex? Would you tell them just, just have a good time? Would you just have maybe some suggestions like we talked about in week number one, like wait till you're ready? 
or like drink and have sex responsibly, right? Whatever that means. If God was going to give the world a message when it comes to sexuality and sex, what do you think God would want to say? Now think about it. It's the same God that has invited you and has invited me to see him and to relate to him and to interact with him as a heavenly father. He wants to be known as our heavenly father. Now, not all of us have like the greatest ideas of fathers and examples of fathers in our life, and that's why he's, he makes the distinction. I'm a heavenly father, someone that's above every other kind of a father you may have known or other example of father you may have had in your life. But what do you think a heavenly father would want to say to you and to me about sex and sexuality? And that's an interesting question. Like, put yourself in God's shoes for a minute. What would you want to say to the people that you love when it comes to sex and sexuality? And so 2,000 years ago, Paul uh, wrote to a group of Christians in a city called Corinth, and Paul was one of the early Christians. Paul shows up on the pages of history as a Christian hater, actually. He hates Jesus, hates the Jesus movement. He's trying to arrest him. He has some Christians killed even. And then Paul meets a risen Jesus. Paul's life has a complete transformation, a complete turnaround, where he goes from hating Christians to being one of the most prolific Christians of his day. And people are asking him, like, what, what made the change? Why did you switch? And Paul tells people, like, I didn't believe that Jesus was anything special. And then after Jesus died, I met a risen Jesus. And when I met him, he didn't show up to box with me. He didn't show up to fight me. He actually extended mercy and grace to me. And it has transformed my life. And so Paul became a Jesus follower, maybe again, the most prolific church starter of his day. And so he would go around, travel all around the Mediterranean Rim, starting these little churches, starting these little Jesus communities. And then he would get them kind of on their feet and established, and then he'd go to another one. And he would write letters back to these Jesus communities that he had started or visited during his time. And so as we're reading this today from 1 Corinthians, what we call 1 Corinthians in the new part of your Bible, the New Testament, Paul's writing to a group, a group of Christians in Corinth, and he's probably already been there a couple of times, already taught what we are about to read. And Paul is writing this back to them to remind them what he had to say from God about sex and sexuality while he was there with the Christians in the city of Corinth. And so he tells them this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, flee from sexual immorality, like run away from this. And, and at first we might think, well, is that harsh? Is that, is that smart? Is that safe? But here's the thing about this idea of fleeing from sexual immorality. Think about this. This is what every husband wants his wife to do. This is what every wife wants her husband to do. This is what every fiancé wants their fiancé to do. This is what every parent wants their teenager to do, right? This is what every big brother wants his little sister to do. When you love someone, and when you care for them, you want them to be safe. But in our culture, and honestly, we're all a little bit complicit in this. We're all a little bit guilty in our culture. Instead of flee from, we want to watch people run toward. Any days of our lives fans in here? Huh? Any 16 and pregnant fans? No? What are some of the other shows? Come on, throw them out. Real Housewives of insert city here, right? I mean, just no other ones? Y'all don't want to admit the other TV shows that you know are out there that you don't want to speak up? Say, okay, we'll just leave that alone. All right. It's not confession time today. So in our culture, instead of flee from, we want to watch people run toward. 
It's what our society, it's what our culture puts out there, right? And then when people actually go over the edge in real life, we condemn them. Culture shames them. And, and it's not like Christians are against sex. That's not what it's about. I mean, this is kind of a cool concept when you think about it. Christians actually believe that at one time there wasn't sex, and God said, you know what would be a cool idea? Sex. And so we believe that God actually came up with the idea of sex, and God gave people this extraordinary gift. But when God gave this extraordinary, powerful gift, God gave it with some guidelines. And so Paul has this insight for the people of Corinth that, hey, when it comes to sexual immorality, flee from it. Run away from it. And then he says this, all other sins. And before we go on in the verse, I think this is so important that we stop and we acknowledge. When Paul talks about this, notice what Paul is doing. Paul is putting sexual sin, and we're going to talk about what that means in just a second. Paul is putting sexual sin in a category all of its own. He puts sexual sin in a category of one. Like there's every other sin every other kind of sin. And then there is sexual sin, and there's something special about it. And I think we, again, if we were to talk about it and talk through some of our life experiences and maybe some of our histories, we would agree with what Paul has to say that when it comes to sexual sin, it has a specific effect. It has a different and damaging effect than anything else that we could engage in that might be called sin. Think about it. It's possible to fully recover from financial sins. It's possible to fully recover from academic mistakes or academic dishonesty, from professional sins, from professional dishonesty. But when it comes to sexuality, sexual sin is a category all of its own. Do I mean you can never be completely forgiven of sexual sin? No, not at all. You can be forgiven of all of your sexual sins from the past, but will it ever be completely forgotten? Uh, and it does damage like no other thing does damage. And it impacts future intimacy. It impacts future relationships. It seems to resurface in all kinds of ways. And some of them are very obvious and some of them end up being surprising. And it can make people secret keepers for life. And, and people end up getting married. And years later, spouses can end up devastated because they found out that they stood at an altar with someone and they thought they knew everything. But when it comes up years, years later, they didn't know everything because sexual sin is in a category all of its own. Now look, that's not surprising to us, but what's kind of surprising about that is that Paul said this 2,000 years ago, and Paul wasn't a psychiatrist, and Paul wasn't a counselor, and he wasn't writing a self-help book. It's almost like someone really smart was telling Paul what to write to the people of the church in Corinth. And so Paul is saying, hey, listen guys, sexual sin has consequences like no other sin. Can you be forgiven? Absolutely. Absolutely. Does God still want you? Completely and unreservedly. He still loves you. But consequences from sexual sin have effects and consequences that will linger for a lifetime. And here's the thing. I know this, and you know this. And even if we don't know it personally, we don't have to go too many relationships removed to see it play out in a life of somebody that we know. And the things that we have done and the things that have been done to us will follow us around our whole life. And it's not a forgiveness thing. Forgiveness has happened, but what was done still seems to linger. It still seems to hang around. And so Paul says, look, flee from sexual immorality. 
Because all other sins that a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Now, what does it mean, this whole idea of sin sexually? And, and, and in the New Testament, in the Jesus part of your Bible, when Jesus shows up on the scene, Jesus is showing up in what we call the New Testament, which is really the word testament is another word for the word covenant. It's another way of, of God having a relationship with people. It's a completely different arrangement than the old part of your Bible. It's not a continuation of, it's not an appendix or an addendum to the Old Testament. It's a completely brand new relationship between God and people. It is the new covenant. It's the new covenant. And as Jesus is kind of living out and showing us and teaching us what this new arrangement looks like between God and people, in the New Testament we see over and over and over again that sin involves hurting other people. Sin involves robbing other people, taking things from other people that that don't belong to us. Sin involves dishonoring other people. And when I put me before you in a way that hurts you, if I put me before you in a way that robs you of something or dishonors you, then that is the essence of sin. Because every person that we have engagement with is loved by God. Every other person that we engage with is a son or a daughter of God. And how many of us know this? Like you can have beef with me and you can have a disagreement with me and that's one thing. But if you mess with my daughter hello, right? If you mess with my son, well, he's bigger than me now, so <laughs> y'all can work that out yourselves. <laughs> I don't even mess with Caleb anymore. Just you know. But you mess with my little girl, you and me are going to have a problem. And so if I hurt one of God's children, if I rob one of God's children, if I do violence or harm to one of God's children, then God and I now have something that needs to be worked out between him and me besides what I need to work out between me and you. It's not a, look, the Old Testament, it's not about this angry old man in the sky with random rules on stone tablets anymore. That's old thinking. Hello, that's an old you know, relationship and type of relationship between God and one specific group of people. That does not apply to us anymore. We are not Jewish. We don't even have the temple system in place. Even if you wanted to live under the terms and conditions of that covenant, you couldn't. It doesn't exist anymore. That's Old Testament mischaracterizations. Now sin has to do with others. And Jesus set up this idea for Christians. You know, you've all heard of the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. It's not even the golden rule with Jesus, even though Jesus said that. Now it's a, it's a, it's a level above that. You are to do unto others as God through Christ has done for you. You're to treat them like God has treated you. You are to treat other people like you would want God to treat you. That's the idea behind sin in the New Testament. And so sexual sin is any time, it happens any time that we do something that hurts or robs or dishonors someone else sexually. Not because God has random rules in place, but because God loves his kids. And you can't hurt God's kids. And the thing is, you are one of his kids too. Isn't it interesting that God had to give us a rule so that we wouldn't hurt ourselves? Think about that. It's kind of interesting. So, sins against their own body. And there's another note to this. You know, when you do this, it's not like anything else. It it can damage 
your ability to enjoy intimacy. This will hurt you in the future. There's nothing else like this category of sin. It's powerful, but it's fragile. And when you cut yourself into bite-sized pieces and give yourself away sexually, you are potentially robbing your future spouse of your total intimacy. When you divide yourself up and give pieces of yourself away, you are robbing your current spouse sexually. When you divide yourself up sexually and give yourself away, you are hurting yourself. And this has nothing to do with random rules of some religion. And it has everything to do with the fact that your heavenly Father loves you. Every part of you, all of you, total you, completely you. And can I just pause and say, I don't care what your past is. Listen, don't, I'm not going judgmental with this thing because we all have skeletons in the closet. We all have ghosts. We all have regrets. We all have failures. And God sees us as we are, not as we wish we were seen. That's the amazing thing about God. Jason taught about this earlier this year and ended with that whole idea that he sees me and he, he fully knows me, yet he fully loves me. That's an incredible truth that is so hard to wrap our brains around, but it is the essence of everything, that God does not see us at our best. God sees us in our brokenness and in our lostness and in our hurt and in all of our wrong and our junk and our dirt and the things that we have done and the things that we are that we hope nobody else finds out about. He already knows and he loves you still so this has nothing to do with random rules on stone tablets it's not what this is about this isn't the 11th and 12th commandment this isn't the 15th commandment 15th commandment this has everything to do with the fact that your heavenly father loves you and he loves the people beside you and he loves the people around you He loves the people in your past. He loves the people in your future. And because he loves us like he does, because he loves us as much as he does, he can't stay quiet about it. He can't stay quiet about it. So flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. And then Paul goes on and he says, do you not know? In other words, this is something you should know, This is something somebody should tell you, and once you know this, this should have some impact on you. But maybe no one ever told you. Maybe no one ever related this to your sex and your sexuality. And and he's talking with Christians. And he, you know, if you're not a Christian, you're kind of starting to become a Christian. This is just talk to Christians here, okay? He's talking to Christians and appealing to something really big now. He's appealing to this thing that takes a big step of faith. It takes a big kind of mental leap, a heart leap, a soul leap to kind of embrace what Paul talks about next. And he says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? And Paul's shifting the conversation. What Paul's doing is he's going from consequence. Paul's like, I've covered that. You see that. You understand that. But now let's talk about identity that you have in Christ. Now let's talk about something that you may not remember from when I was with you last time, something you maybe didn't catch when I was there last time. It's a way of seeing yourself. It's a way of valuing yourself. You are a temple. And we kind of, you know, we hear this language, and to us, it doesn't really, you know, have as much impact, I don't think, as it had in the ancient world. In the ancient world, to be a temple was huge. 
especially in a city like Corinth that was this, this world trade center where all the different cultures and all the different races would kind of combine. All of the different wor- religions from all over the world kind of collided in Corinth. And in Corinth were, were temples all over the place to different deities of different religions. But for us in, in 2020 America, something's kind of been lost in this. In our culture, nothing is sacred. But in that culture, temples were sacred. And there were places that were sacred, and there were books that were sacred, and there were people that were considered sacred. And what Paul is doing is taking the idea from a building and putting it onto our individual bodies. And Paul would say, you might feel like nothing is sacred, but what I'm trying to tell you is that you are sacred. In fact, Christian, you are more sacred than the most sacred location on the whole planet. Because after Jesus lived, and died, and then lived again, and ascended into heaven. Now you're in this new covenant. Now you're in this new relationship where God is living and dealing and acting with people in a way that he has never done before. Never before has this been available to everyone. But now you, as Jesus followers, you are filled with the Holy Spirit of God himself. You are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. You're the temple of God. And the Holy Spirit does not live in buildings anymore. But you are the bearers of divine presence. Which means that you and I are temples that have been designed by God for Him to live inside of us. That God has made us intentionally to be who we are. That God planned to live inside of you and you and you and you and me. That God ordered our lives and orchestrated our lives to work something uniquely through each and every one of us. And here's why this is such a big deal. Look, this is why you have to understand this. The value of a container is determined by what that container contains. Think about this. If you were to steal my brother's fanny pack, he wouldn't be worried about recovering the fanny pack, would he? (laughs) You're wondering right now, does my brother really carry a fanny pack? He doesn't, but it was funny. I had to throw that in there. But if you were to steal his wallet, he wouldn't be concerned about finding the wallet. If you lose your wallet, you're not so much concerned about recovering your wallet as you are recovering what was in the wallet. When you get that wallet back, you want to know if there's any cash on the inside. Because more than likely, you didn't have any cash on the inside when you lost it, and you're hoping there's some cash On the inside, when you get it back, can I hear a good amen from somebody that wants a blessing from on high? Yeah, (laughs) thought I'd get some amens there. You want your credit card back. You shouldn't, but you do. You want your debit card back. You want your license back. You want your medical card back, right? You want your Jamba Juice Club card back. You want your Starbucks reward gold card back. Can I hear an amen from any saved people in the house? Can you imagine... If someone was to rob you, they put a gun in your back and said, give me your wallet, but you can keep everything that's in it. It's like, sure, I'll give you my wallet. Let me take all this stuff out. What what determines the value of the container is what the container has on the inside. 
And what Paul is saying is your container is not limited. Its value of yourself is not limited by your own experiences, by your own determination of your self-worth. But now that you are a follower of Jesus, now that you have been filled with the Holy Spirit, you are carrying within yourself the presence of divinity into your world. And your value is not determined by yourself anymore. Your worth and your value is determined by God who lives inside of you. So you, and you, and he, and she, and them, and we, we are the temples of the Holy Spirit. We're the containers of the Holy Spirit. And he goes on and he says, you're not your own. You're not your own. And we, man, we kind of don't like this statement, do we? Well, yes, I am my own. I'm the master of my own destiny. I'm the captain of my own vessel. Hello? Anybody remember when you turned 18? Yeah, yeah. 18, then I live with my parents till I was 20, none of your business. And it's just, I am my own person, but I need some help. And Christians get this. And Paul's writing to Christians. You're not a Jesus follower. You know, if you're not a Jesus follower, you don't have to listen to this part. But listen, for Christians, Jesus followers, we know we were our own and we messed up on our own. And we needed redeeming. We needed someone to be the new captain of our ship, as it were. And he found us. And he rescued us. And he has changed us and is changing us and transforming us. And doesn't leave us with our own value, but gives us his sense of our worth. And so Paul is reminding the Christians of this. You are not your own, but you were bought at a price. You were bought at a price. Well, what price? What price? Think about this. What price was paid for you? What price was paid for you? Would you think that something would be valuable if somebody would spend $100 on it? Sure, that'd be pretty valuable. What if somebody would spend $1,000 to buy something? Would you think that that thing was valuable? Sure, right? It's starting to get really valuable. What if somebody paid a million dollars for an object? Would you in this room, would you consider that valuable? Raise your hand. No? <laughs> Y'all got expensive taste. <laughs> okay, $10 million. Let's go with that. Would you consider that valuable? Let me see your hands. Some of y'all still. A billion dollars. I can go all day, guys. $10 billion. If somebody paid $10 billion, you're like, Jared, just get to the point, okay? We get where you're going with it. Would something be considered valuable if someone was willing to lay down their life in order to purchase that thing? In fact, might that be the ultimate expression of value? If someone was willing to give up their own life to redeem something? How much does God think you're worth? How much value does God put on you? God thinks you are to die for. And Paul is saying, since you know this, since you have experienced this, Christians, since this story, this transaction that took place at Calvary, since it has moved you and captured you and, and brought you into this new relationship with God himself, don't forget that you are not your own. You were bought at a price. And therefore, honor God with your container. Honor God with your vessel. Honor God with your bodies. And this, this, this is the New Testament sexual ethic. This is what Jesus tried to teach people. 
This is what Jesus came to bring into reality for us who follow him. That it's not just about consequences anymore. This is about identity. This is about whose you are. And I wonder what would happen if our world could see the people around us in this way. I wonder what would happen if we saw in the people around us what Paul says is actually in the people around us. And I wonder how it would impact the way that we treat them. This is what it's all about when it comes to being a Jesus follower. So, like last week, we're going to end today with a few suggestions, some guardrails for our morality and some guardrails for our relationships. And if you don't want these to be your guardrails, that's fine. I get that again. But here's the thing. If, if you don't like these guardrails, then you have to wrestle with this on your own, and you have to come up with your own guardrails. So here we go. Three suggestions this week from the series Guardrails. First of all, a personal guardrail for you is to talk about things that are going on in the relationships that are in your life. If you're married, you need to talk about this with your spouse. If you're engaged, you need to talk about this with your fiancé. If you're dating and in a serious relationship, you need to talk about this with your significant other. You need to talk about what you're comfortable with and what you're not comfortable with. You need to talk about what you're comfortable with in your husband's and your wife's relationships with other people from the opposite sex, what your fiancé's relationships are with other people from the opposite sex, what your significant other's relationships are with other men and other women. You need to know what she thinks. You need to know what he thinks. You need to know what's comfortable in the workplace, what's comfortable when it comes to your circle of friends. Talk about it. You need to have a conversation. And listen, I think, and this is kind of tagging back in on where we left off in week one and and talking about this. You should avoid traveling and eating alone with people of the opposite sex. And we talked about this in week one, the Mike Pence rule. And, uh, you know, Mike Pence made this kind of re-famous again just a few years ago, but Billy Graham made this well-known back in the 60s. and, and, And he caught tons of flack for it then. Mike Pence has caught tons of flack for it recently. But he is he has this personal guardrail in his life that he won't travel alone with a woman that's not his wife. He won't dine alone with a woman that's not his wife. He won't take a meeting behind closed doors with a woman who is not his wife. And and maybe you say that's not possible in your own work group, and maybe genuinely it's not possible in your situation. And that's why these guardrails are all personal. I get that. But you need to have a talk with your spouse. You need to have a talk with your fiance. You need to have a talk with your significant other about the situation. And then if you absolutely can't avoid it, suggestion number two is this. You need to tell them about it. You need to be upfront with it. If you have to have that meeting, if you have to go to a conference, you need to text them. You need to call them. You need to let them know ahead of time if you know ahead of time. And if you ever get to the point where you feel that, uh, that pushback where you're not sure you want to let them know, you're not sure you want to call or text, that is your guardrail. You've not done anything wrong. There's been no sin committed. You've not gone off the edge. But this is where your conscience should light up. This is where it should get your attention. And then lastly, for a suggestion for today, for this, is that if you feel your heart and your desire moving toward another person, you need to tell somebody. You need to tell somebody. It may not be that you want to talk to your husband or wife just yet, but you need to tell somebody. Because research has shown that sometimes speaking it out loud can diffuse it, and you don't want to carry the secret around in your life. So these are some guardrails. Talk about it. Tell them about it. Or tell somebody about it when it comes to your relationships and interactions with other people. Now, 
We talked in week one about this and the Mike Pence rule and, and, and how it relates to, you know, like ladies in the workforce, women in the workforce, and this kind of stuff. And the author of this study brings up a great point, and he actually brought up an example as well where a woman had written him an email that she had moved from a, a for-profit company into a higher position at a non-profit organization, and none of the men in the non-profit organizations would take a meeting or have business lunches with this lady. And so she actually felt like she was not afforded the opportunity for advancement that other people were getting. And she was probably right because there was a bad application here of this Mike Pence kind of guardrail that sometimes this can be taken and abused and twisted. And, and leaders have to make sure that these guardrails aren't being used to abuse or suppress anyone's opportunities for advancement. But you probably know this. If you have some kind of leader that's maybe twisting this idea or twisting this rule and using it to kind of keep themselves away from women or deny opportunities, chances are they probably have a lot of other leadership issues going on as well. And one of the other things that he brought up is that he got another email from a lady that said, you know, the wording of this, this idea of having a guardrail like this where a man can't, you know, take a meeting alone or have a meal alone with a woman or travel alone with a woman, it makes them seem like women are, are predators. And it's a great point that he brings up. I think we all know this in this room, and this might be offensive to some of us men, but historically, statistically, and just empirically in the examples that we see, men are the predators. Women are not the sexual predators. In week one, we looked at the Harvard Business Review article where it talked about men are these marginally evolved cavemen. They're not far off from that. Can I hear an ooga-booga from somebody in the room? Like, you're not far off from that, right? In the news cycle, it seems like there's always one or two examples, one or two stories and reports of men being sued or fired for inappropriate sexual conduct or for being creepy or for being too touchy or handsy and having predatory behavior. So ladies, listen, this is not at all, this is not at all a negative reference toward women. But when this is applied properly, when this is applied with balance, it fosters healthy environments for women in the professional workplace, and it, it gives space and it gives guidelines for equality without ignoring the obvious differences that exist between men and women. And again, this is the whole thing. The point of a guardrail is to light up our conscience before, everybody say before, before we hurt ourselves or others. This is designed to make us sensitive to something, not because we've done something, but because we might, in fact, be headed for something, all right? So, ending up today, and this, you know, coming from a Spirit-filled church, if I could just say for a second, like, lessons like this are always tough, and Dustin and I, we always work behind the scenes every week to, you know, what are we going to do at the end of service? You know, what are we going to do for what we traditionally call the altar call on this? And these lessons are, like, so practical, and they have so much teaching in them that, a lot of times this is kind of awkward and, and hard right here, you know, to kind of talk about these things. We don't really land in this emotional, traditional, spirit-filled altar call type of moment. But I think this is so important for us to talk about. And, and why do we talk about this in church? Well, the reason that we talk about this in church is where else are you getting to talk about this? Think about this. In our culture, what equips you to, main, to, to remain faithful? What in our culture equips you to remain faithful? What in our culture supports your decision to remain faithful? Advertising? No. Movies? No. Fifty Shades of whatever? No. Hello. Television? Books? 
music? What in culture keeps you on the road in between the guardrails? Church might be the only place where you hear about this. Remember Paul's words, be careful how you walk. Make the most of every, every opportunity, redeeming the time because the days are evil. The forces around us are evil. And single people, this is the same thing. If you're not married, listen, in our culture, what equips you to guard your sexuality? What in our society tells young people or, or single people like, hey, I really care about you and I want to breathe some life into you, so I'm, I'm going to give you some warnings and some guardrails for yourself to kind of keep you safe and to keep you... Nobody does. Nobody except church. Nobody except maybe our senior students' ministry. Hello. And if you establish these guardrails in five years, do you think you're going to look back and regret having guardrails? In five years, if you have some guardrails, whether it's professionally or morally or relationally or financially, whatever it is, do you think you're going to look back and regret not having a scandal? Do you think you're going to look back and regret not blowing up your finances or any of these kinds of things? In five years, you're going to look back and decide it's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And so we have a decision to make when we consider Paul's words today, to flee or to flirt. Hello. To feed that thing with the things that we consume or to not. But fleeing honors God. Fleeing honors your legacy. Fleeing honors your reputation. Fleeing honors others. By choosing to flee, it means that you'll, you'll establish some guardrails and some boundaries that ding your conscience while you're still in the safety zone. And you might not be celebrated now, but you'll be able to celebrate later because the guardrails that you established, or the guardrails that someone else helped establish with you will be part of the story that you get to tell. So think about it. So talk about it. Tell somebody about it and do something about it in your life because I'm pretty sure you'll be glad you did. For more information about City Grace, you can find us online at citygrace.church. We'll see you next week.